Well, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 this morning. We're going to, uh, as I said, uh, take our time in these passages because they are rich and deep. So would you please stand with me this morning as I read from God's Word the same passage that we read last week as we look at a different aspect of it this week. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethania, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So we're going to dive into this morning, uh, I think we'll be able to get through the first two persons of the Trinity before we partake of the Lord's Supper, but we began to look some at the Trinity last week, and we have all three persons of the Trinity mentioned in this passage, and the part of the work of each of the persons of the Trinity, and so we need to not move past this quickly. We're going to talk about the work and the offices of each of the persons of the Trinity this morning. So we have one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in the Trinity, we have both unity and we have diversity. The unity of the Trinity is the purpose of salvation. The, the, the work that God is working in the world is to glorify himself through the salvation of sinners. But what we see here in this passage is the breaking up of roles or purposes of each of the persons of the Trinity. So there is diversity. Where there is unity, there is also diversity. Each playing a different part in our salvation. And in this, there is mystery. And the word mystery is used often in the Bible to explain the work of the Lord. And I think it's a, a word that we should define because it's an important word. It, it doesn't mean that something is untrue. And it doesn't mean that something is completely unknowable. What it means is that there are aspects of whatever it may be that we don't fully understand. And because we don't fully understand those, we cannot reconcile all the things together. And so with any good mystery, it's a complex reality that we don't fully understand. But all good mysteries also, a pieces and parts of them become more known to us over time as we seek them out. And so it is with the mystery of God, that the mystery of the Lord becomes more clear to us as we understand more about God. When we know nothing of God's word, we know very little about who God is. But the more that we study his word, the more that we are in prayer, the more that we continue with the church and with other brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those that are further down the road than we are in knowing and understanding and serving the Lord, as we get older, and then ultimately one day as we enter into heaven and into the real full presence of the Lord God, many of the questions that we have about the Lord will be answered progressively. I firmly believe we will not ever understand everything about God. Some people will tell you that when you go to heaven, you'll understand everything. All your questions will be answered. I don't believe that because God will still be God and we will still be his creatures. And part of us as a creature and God as God is that that separation causes us to worship him. And there's a part of that that causes wonder. And that wonder of the glory of God and who he is is a part of our worship and I believe that it will always be a part of our worship. But about this passage this morning, uh, theologian R.C. Sproul writes this. When we talk about the work of redemption, we talk about it as a triune activity. There is the Father's work in election, 
and his sovereign plan to save his people, that redemption is accomplished by Christ and applied to people's lives by the Holy Spirit. The Father sends the Son, and the Son accomplishes the work, and that work is brought home to the lives of individuals through the intervention and the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit brings us to faith in Christ, he does not stop with the initial work of regeneration or rebirth. He is also the chief architect of our sanctification, of our being brought into conformity to Christ, all that is contained in this verse of introduction. So we have a lot going on in these first verses, which is why we're spending time with them. So we have before us this morning the work of redemption. And I want you to see the work of redemption this morning, possibly in a, in, a, in a different light than you're used to looking at it. I want us to understand that the work of redemption is taking a lost and ruined sinner, someone under the condemnation of God, someone with a heart full of pride, uh, self-exaltation, uh, ex- someone that the scriptures describe as dead before God. And that person in this low and lost place in making that person alive unto the Lord God, breaking the bondage of sin and death, being forgiven truly of our guilt before God, being adopted into the kingdom of God, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and being made into a new person. And what I want you to grasp this morning is that this is not a simple thing. It's a simple thing in one way, but it's a radical life change. If you have come to Christ, you understand the difference of who you were before you were in Christ and who you are after you were in Christ, and it's not a small change. It's a complete and total change of your life. And so when we talk about difficult things, we should not expect that the things of God are simple. And I want to illustrate this. I was on a flight this past week, and there was a nurse sitting next to me. We ended up talking, as I sometimes do, I'll let, I'll let a little secret out. I was preparing part of the sermon on the plane. That's always exciting. When you get a table like this big, and you've got like commentaries and things stacked up and piled against the wall, and you're like writing, and, and she's like, what are you doing? And uh, I said, I'm, I'm working on a sermon. I'm, I'm a pastor, and that, that just, all right, all kinds of conversation from there. It was a wonderful conversation. But she was a, neuro, uh, a neurosurgery nurse at the Cleveland Clinic in Miami. That was an interesting conversation. About six to nine hour operations of people's heads being opened up and working through what it means to operate on someone's brain and hearing the complexities of that. And I wanna just compare the two. If you went to a a doctor of neurosurgery and said, hey, I'd like to have lunch a couple times this month. Could you explain brain surgery to me? And he would say, no. Like, uh, that's a uh, week, yes, so we can go and have lunch, and I'll explain to you what it means to, you know, x-ray somebody's head and then see a tumor and shave it and, and take a saw and cut a hole and then pull a plug out and remove something, plug it back up and pray that it heals. Like, there's brain surgery. So in a, in a way, that is brain surgery. But you know, you're kidding yourself if you think you've gotten anywhere close to what brain surgery really is. And so what I want to present to you today is that The salvation of our soul is as simple as repenting and believing. But I also want you to see that there is so much more going on there. 
and you can spend the rest of your life studying and seeking to understand the glorious salvation of what it means that God takes us from a ruined, dead sinner and makes us his son or daughter and takes us all the way from physical and spiritual death to physical and spiritual eternal life with him forever. And there is so much glory there, and it's so, much, it's so worth examining what God is doing. And so the first thing that we see here in the work of the Trinity in salvation is we see God the Father and the work of God the Father from the past. And so there's various ways that this is translated. Uh, I read to you this morning from the English Standard Version, and uh, the NIV, the HCS, or the Holman Standard Christian, or the New American Standard Bible, probably something of everybody that has here today, the the various words that are used here are related to election, choosing, and foreknowledge. So the English Standard puts an emphasis on the election portion before it goes into those that are dispersed abroad and then goes back to foreknowledge of God the Father. The other three versions that uh, you may have here all speak of being chosen according to foreknowledge. They bring those closer together. It's the same concept in the end. It's the same words being translated with a little bit different emphasis. It's the same group of people. It's the same actors, uh, which is God the Father, in the passage. And so what is happening here is God is doing a choosing work or an action of his will, and he's doing it according to foreknowledge. And so one is an act of God's will, and another is according to knowledge or known beforehand, foreknowledge. And that is a, a pretty simple understanding. It's that God understands what is going to happen in the future, and that he is acting according to his will based on things happening in the future. So I want to back up before we get to the specifics of this and talk about generalities. Most people, I believe, want to believe that there is purpose and meaning in the future. I don't know too many people that have no problem with the future just tumbling forward in a random and chaotic way. Many people will quote a part of Scripture that is totally incomplete without the rest of the Scripture, but it is all things work together for the good. And they'll stop right there. And that's a, that's a hope, that's a general hope, that all things work together for the good. But I want to challenge you this morning, because most people that I know that reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and will say that all things work together for the good are also people that adhere to an evolutionary mindset of the world, that the world came about through random time and chance. And the idea that things are working together towards purpose and goodness and a righteous end and that the world has come about and exists through random time and chance, those two things do not logically go together. They do not work together. But people will bring together these illogical conclusions all the time in their life. The Bible tells us that we have a different situation going on. That in fact there is a God who has created the world and in his creation of the world, he has purpose and meaning in the world. And that he is unfolding the history and events of the world according to his purposes. And that God does, in fact, know the future. He knows what is going to happen before it happens, which is the idea of foreknowledge. And God is not guessing at what that's going to be. 
this is part of the mystery of God that we cannot grasp how God relates to time. You and I exist in time. We cannot get outside of time. We cannot stop being in a 24-hour cycle. We cannot stop growing older. We cannot really even conceive of what it would be to exist not bound by time because we have been created to be bound by time. But in some way, God is not bound by time. In some way, the Lord knows the beginning from the end, that he is both the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And in some way, God understands and knows the events of the world before they are happening and as they are happening, and that he is in fact causing those things to happen according to choices of his will and the purposes for which he is working out in the world. And this is something that can and should give us great comfort, that God is not arbitrary and the world is not tumbling forward according to random time and chance and that you are not an accident, that God is at work in the world. We spent a lot of time, many weeks, looking at the the book of Daniel just prior to this. And in Daniel, there is so much talk of the Lord projecting or speaking to the future. And in speaking to the future, he is also speaking about causing that future. So it's not a future that just happens to be working out, but it's God's purpose and plan for his people that he is shaping and disciplining and redeeming and all of it going towards his ultimate purposes of sending Christ Jesus the Son. And so we have foreknowledge and we have choice. And we have those things working out according to God's good design. The greatest example I believe we have in all the Bible of this is Jesus Christ in his own ministry. And we have it through many prophecies in the Old Testament given in various times and through various prophets speaking about a coming Messiah. And we have those prophecies being fulfilled in the life of Christ. And these are not being fulfilled through random time and chance, that these things happen to just work out in this way. Because the most magnificent culmination of all these things is the cross of Jesus Christ, where the 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 design of God and the salvation of sinners comes to pass in the cross. And it says that it is according to God's will and in due time that these things happen. And one of the most amazing things, if you've never thought about it before, is all of God's purposes to cause these things to happen are carried out in a large part at the cross by people that hated Jesus and were doing everything that they could to undo the will of God. But as they are acting in real ways to seek to undo the will of God, they are in fact doing what? Accomplishing the will of God. It's fascinating and very worth thinking about. But God's will will be accomplished. And the salvation of Christ upon the cross and his death and burial and resurrection, that central part, which we're getting ready to talk about, the atonement of Christ, was going to be, and there was never any doubt that it would ever not be accomplished according to God's will. While the issues of the world are going on, while Roman history is unfolding, it's fascinating and it's very worth thinking about. But God the Father according to his purposes and according to his foreknowledge is making a plan and then causing that plan to unfold. 
And so I find it very interesting that people are comforted by the idea of knowing that God is good and that he is in control of the world. When people are in the midst of chaotic situations in their life, we often will put our arms around someone and say, God has a plan for these things, God has a purpose for your life, and that is right, and that is true, and it is good to comfort people with such things. But what's interesting is that people tend to push back against this idea of God working out his will in the world when it becomes personal to their lives. And what do I mean by that? We're comforted by the idea that God is shaping the events of the world and that the world is not just a chaotic unfurling of things. But when it comes to my life and the idea that God may be shaping the events of my life, Americans especially are intense in their personal autonomy and the desire that I want my life to be what I want my life to be and I don't really want God to be involved with it unless I need him to be. And if I need him to be, then I'm going to sort of like rub that genie bottle and then ask him to come and be involved. But then once I've got that taken care of, I want to be back on my own route of doing whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. And so I'm going to challenge you this morning that those two things don't work together. That God is sovereign over the affairs of nations because God is sovereign over the individuals that make up those nations. We need to understand that when you look out on the, the shore, the, the seashore, sand is not just sand. Sand is made up of a bunch of little individual grains. When you take all those individual grains and pile them together, you get a beach. And so a nation is not just a nation. A nation is made up of millions of individual people. And the whole idea that God is working out his will in the world is the base level of God working out his will in the lives of individual people. And so each of us are making very real and meaningful choices every day. We're going to spend some more time emphasizing that uh, next week. But we are all making real and meaningful choices every single day. But God is shaping and he is choosing and he is working according to his will and knowledge every day as well. And so we have different aspects to the character of God that we need to keep in focus that God is sovereign, but God is also good. And so sometimes I think that people, whether they understand it or not, when they say, I don't really want God at work in my life according to his will, they are doubting the goodness of God. I encourage you, if you're struggling with that, that you spend more time looking at and thinking about and considering what the scriptures say about the goodness and the mercy of God. Because if God is good and God is merciful and he is all wise, then entrusting our lives to him is a, is a smart thing. It's a good thing. It's a, it's a wise thing. We would be much better off there than going at our own. Now also the Lord is just but he is also merciful, which we're getting ready to see in Christ Jesus. God does judge sin, but he is merciful in extending his grace and his kindness to sinners that do not deserve his grace. The most important series of events in the Bible are not issues related to economics or to politics, but they are spiritual things. Salvation, this great salvation of God that is working out in our lives is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and according to his choosing work. Well, the second thing that we see here, we're going to go to Christ Jesus the Son. I know that the sanctifying work of the Spirit is second, but as we see elsewhere in the Bible, the outworking of salvation goes from God's work 
to the atoning work of Christ to then the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So let's go next to Jesus Christ. And it mentions here obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling of his blood. The salvation plan prepared beforehand by God the Father is accomplished by God the Son. Jesus Christ's central work is his atoning work, him bearing our sins in his own body, that Jesus Christ is doing the work and did the work in his own life and death to earn our salvation. Let's talk about that some more. Uh, this sprinkling of blood uh, bit here is, is very uh, unusual for our modern time. You say, what, is, what in the world is, is he talking about here? To understand this, we have to go back to symbolism that the Lord God instituted purposefully for us to understand what is going on here. In the Old Testament, there is ceremonial law. God gave very specific directions. You can go back, if you're reading through your Bible, and all these plans for how to build a tabernacle and how to build a temple, and usually when you're reading through the Bible, those are the pages that are like, all right, let's, let's, that's another lampstand, that's another series of curtains, like let's, let's keep going here to get to the good stuff. But it's important People can take all those and you can actually build a building with it and you can draw something and understand like what God was doing and that's what they did. They took these instructions and they built a, a tent with it first, a tabernacle, and then they built a, a temple with it, a building. And that building was central to the worship of the people. And at the center of those places of worship was the Ark of the Covenant where the Lord God displayed his presence and there were very specific instructions and very specific way that it was to be situated and two golden cherubim with their, with their wings touching over top and it was called the mercy seat, which is the place where the people would go with the confession of their sins that they might receive pardon from the Lord God. And so there was something called the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, the whole chapter is about the Day of Atonement. And there was a specific day set aside where the high priest was to take a bull and a goat and kill this bull and this goat. And they were to take some of the blood of that animal, which was to signify, as we'll talk about here in a moment with the blood of Christ, to signify the life of that animal, that the life of that animal was given so that the uh, sins of the people might be covered in some way. And they were to take some of that blood and go into the holiest place, which the high priest was only allowed to go one single time a year. And they were to sprinkle some of that blood on the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant. And it was symbolic of substitution, one thing dying for another thing to live. But everyone understood that this was only symbolic because there's no way that a goat dying could cover the sins of, of a nation. Think about all the wickedness of Israel that is laid out in the Old Testament. So much sin and so much rebellion against God. There's no way that the death of a goat could cover this before an almighty and just God. And so there is a waiting in the New Testament for a savior, for a Messiah. There's always this forward looking. All right, we're gonna go to the next day of atonement. That's year, and then the next day of atonement. And year after year after year after year, the people are looking for an ultimate sacrifice able to truly bear their sins. And this is Christ Jesus, our Lord. When he comes onto the scene in his ministry, John the Baptist first proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
not the Lamb of God who covers the sins of the world, but takes away the sins of the world. And so when Jesus Christ goes to the cross and is there, dies, and sheds his blood, he who is divine, he who lived a perfectly righteous life, satisfying the demands of the law, he who was proclaimed over and over and over at his trial to have no guilt. I find no guilt in this man. Let me uh, scourge him and release him. And no, the crowds come back, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he goes to the cross as a substitution, as a worthy substitution, the Son of God sent to atone for the sins of his people. And he goes and is there crucified and meets the justice of God on the cross. And when the justice of God is met, then the mercy of God might be unfolded. Because God cannot be merciful if his justice has not first been met. And we all understand that. If someone does something terrible, we cannot just forgive them. Something must be done in justice. You think of some terrible shooting or some oh, this, this horrible event that just happened in Thailand of this, of this shooting. If that person, who will, it will never happen because of the way the events unfolded, but if he went to trial and the judge just said, you know, I am merciful, I'm going to just forgive you, you're now released. There would be riots in the streets because it's unjust that a person like that could just be forgiven. There has to be justice. And so it is with God. We don't see our sins as so great, but our sins are offensive to God in an extent that they demand death. And we go all the way back again to the beginning of things, to the first rebellion of Adam and Eve. And it said, if you partake of this tree, you will what? You will surely die. And death came into the world there. And in Christ Jesus and in his resurrection from the dead, we begin to have the reversal of the curse of death and what will be ultimately a final reversal into eternal life for all those in Christ Jesus. And so we have justice and we have mercy and grace extended and then we have us responding to that grace by faith. And the scriptures say that by grace through faith, we are justified or declared not guilty before the Lord. And so when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and turn away from our sins, we can receive this atoning uh, work of Christ Jesus and be forgiven of our sins, passing from death unto life. The Bible calls it regeneration, being made new in the Lord. I'm going to have to stop here for the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Next week, we will go to the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Such a beautiful work, such an important work, and I hope that you'll come back that we can talk about that more. But we've seen today two of the works of God, that, that your salvation is not a happenstance thing. It may seem to you like you just stumbled into this church or you just came into a meeting with a friend and that that person told you about Christ Jesus and you, the conviction of the Lord came upon your heart and you came to salvation and you think, man, that, what a wonderful thing. What, did, what would have happened if I had never met that person or I'd never come into that place? But I want you to see here this morning that God saving you was not a, a happenstance thing. You didn't stumble into it. God knew your name and was drawing you to, your, to himself because of his great love for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time together. And I thank you for your work of salvation. You did not have to do what you have done. 
You did not have to send your son, Jesus, uh, to die. You did not have to pour out grace and mercy upon the people of this world, for we deserve uh, what, we, what we would receive for our sins, which is death, rebellion against God. We all know, Lord, that we have sinned against you, but we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We rejoice in it, and we want to go out and bear witness to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you also might be forgiven of your sins, that we go out and tell the world that Jesus has risen from the dead and that this world is not a series of happenstance, random events, but it is working out according to God's will. There is a good, merciful, loving, and kind God. Lord, help us to bear witness to your name with joy and glory this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.